Welcome to the PRI Review, brought to you by the Population Research Institute. I'm your host, Christopher Manley. Trouble lies ahead in demographics and in doctrine. Is demography destiny? Eric Sammons has done a lot of digging into the numbers, and he finds that the situation of the Catholic Church is far worse, he says, than even the most pessimistic projections. Relying on figures from CARA, the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate, Sammons reports that America's population is growing twice as fast as the Catholic population. Moreover, what growth the Church has enjoyed is due almost entirely to immigration. And there, the figures show that the longer a Catholic immigrant is in the United States, the more likely he is to leave the Church. Well, wherever the growth came from, one would expect families to grow and baptisms to increase, right? But between 1970 and 2019, the number of infant baptism decreased by almost half in the U.S., and most of the decrease has occurred in the last 20 years. Adult baptisms have also tanked. Since 2005, the annual number has fallen by 54%. And while our efforts to evangelize non-Catholics seem to be faltering, the situation is worse among cradle Catholics. The number of Americans identifying themselves as Catholic has fallen by 10% since 2005. As the Pew Trust polls have found, self-identified ex-Catholics now constitute the second-largest religious denomination in America. CARA reports that their number has accelerated since 2000 and has now reached some 30 million. And that number represents only those still living. How many millions of baptized Catholics have died outside the Church since Vatican II, deprived of the sacraments in their final hours? Did they realize the danger that posed to their eternal souls? Or did they receive in their lifetimes even a minimal catechesis that taught them to bear in mind every day the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell? One pastor puts the question succinctly. Pray for invincible ignorance. Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Well, Salmon's uncovers even more trouble. Although the nominal Catholic population is growing, the number of those attending Mass weekly has fallen by 50% since 1970. Again, most of the decline has occurred since 2000. And that figure represents the situation before the virus wreaked havoc in the Church. Cardinal Robert Seurat sees things differently. We need priests who are men of the interior life, God's watchmen, and pastors passionately committed to the evangelization of the world and not social workers or politicians, he writes. Well, what about the laity? We have to prepare as the current crisis intensifies. In our view, it calls for confrontation, not capitulation. In Veritatis Splendor, his 1993 encyclical, St. John Paul echoes St. Paul, and calls us to obedience in truth and to turn to God from idols. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 St. 
John Paul writes to defend certain fundamental truths of Catholic doctrine which, in the present circumstances, risk being distorted or denied, not only in the culture, but within the Christian community itself. John Paul's chilling insight was written almost 30 years ago. Has the Christian community recovered in the years since? Have so-called Catholic politicians caught on? Well, the numbers reported by Salmons don't look good. Remember his distressing figures described the deplorable condition of the church before the virus hit last winter. Since then, for the first time in history, attendance at Mass was forbidden for months. Now, as churches slowly reopen, pastors wonder how many will return. Well, we have learned one thing, and that is that Caesar is not our friend. Clearly, the virus lockdowns wrought serious damage. Here in PRI's home state of Virginia, Governor Ralph Northam declared abortion to be essential, while mass was deemed non-essential. He received precious little pushback, even from church leaders. Northam's views were no secret. A pediatrician he had already declared his support of infanticide for children who, re- who survive late-term abortions. During the pandemic, many secular Caesars, like Northam, exploited the virus to deny eternal truths as well as fundamental inalienable rights. For them, immorality was an asset, not a liability, and most of them got away with it. Those who oppose the right to life cannot be trusted. They must be confronted with the truth. No compromise. Compromise is, after all, a false idol, and Pope John Paul warned us against it, as did St. Paul. The crisis that John Paul describes is dire, indeed, but we cannot solve it by negotiating with a culture of death. St. Paul calls us to turn away from idols, not reach a compromise designed to weaken our resolve and dilute our faith for the sake of a false sense of security. Okay, I'll take this idol, but not that one. In Matthew 5, Christ tells us not to hide our light under a basket, but to let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. But wait, aren't we facing a genuine crisis? How can we witness to the truth in these dark days with the forces of darkness fighting? Hard, not only to drive the light of truth out of the public square, but to extinguish it altogether. Let's reminisce a moment. Like John Paul, Alexander Solzhenitsyn grew up under communism. Both men were manifestly aware of the Marxist errors, but they focused more on the genuine crisis in the West. And that crisis continues today. Solzhenitsyn put the problem bluntly. Men have forgotten God. To confront the secular tsunami, he said in 1983, we can propose only a determined quest for the warm hand of God, which we have so rashly and self-confidently spurned. It is during trials such as these that the highest gifts of the human spirit are manifested. Well, in Ephesians 6, St. Paul gives us our marching orders. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. 
and after you have done everything, to stand. End quote. Let us pray that we can bravely make the light of Christ sign before men in these dark days. Well, speaking of Solzhenitsyn, at the time that he wrote, Russia and Poland were still under the heavy boot of communism. Christians in both countries, and indeed countries all over the world that suffered under communism, were persecuted in every possible way. Now, one day, some 40 years ago, I met in Washington with members of several religious groups, including Catholic groups. Our host was Michael Novak, my good friend and mentor, as well as one of the foremost Catholic social thinkers of his generation. I still recall how a heated argument arose regarding the socialist countries that were persecuting Christians all over the world, but especially in what we called the captive nations, Eastern Europe, which had been given to Stalin by Franklin Roosevelt at the Yalta Conference at the end of World War II. Several of the guests, all Christians who were prominent in various academic and professional pursuits, were very critical of our own relatively free society here in the United States. Now, a few of the participants actually argued that it would be good for the United States to move towards socialism, even if a secular government should be anti-Catholic and anti-Christian. Their view was, look, John Paul II grew up under communism, and he became one of the greatest Christians in recent history. So did, so did Solzhenitsyn. Compare them to the United States and the shabby shape that the church is in, our colleague argued, we can certainly do better and maybe living under the yoke of communism will make us better Christians and more Christians and bring people to their senses and value the faith that they are now forgetting because of the luxury in which they are prospering. Yes, they're prospering perhaps, but they're not flourishing. That's how this argument went. Communism makes for great martyrs. When's the last time the United States produced a martyr anyway? Well, that was his argument. That's how it went. And frankly, I've heard a lot of arguments for socialism over the years, but that one takes the cake. Okay, communism does cause suffering, deprivation, and the loss of a vibrant practice of the faith. But Jean-Jacques Rousseau was wrong. You cannot force people to be free. And you cannot force people to be good or to be good Catholics. John Paul II became a great saint not because of communism, but in spite of it. Now, it's true that we are all called to be great saints, but we must seek a society in which the faith is allowed to flourish and where the faithful freely make the choice to follow Christ. There is no shortcut to sainthood including communism. You're listening to the PRI Review from the Population Research Institute at pop.org. We'll be right back.
As the Wuhan virus lingers on around the world, political leaders and other magnates in many countries have decided to take advantage of the confusion and uncertainty to strengthen their power and influence in various ways. To investigate the approach that these governments and other institutions are taking to consolidate their power and change our culture, the Population Research Institute has published a free ebook offering the accounts of experts from several countries around the world. Their first-hand accounts report how those power plays have played out in their countries. The book begins by looking at the origins of the virus in China, including an incisive analysis by Steve Moser, president of PRI. His contribution is followed by studies that pursue the use of data management. The Googles of the world that already know everything about you want to control you too. Then there are the media and the disinformation manipulators they work with, the lawyers and how they want to cash in, the United Nations, which considers itself the natural force to run a locked-down world, and international organizations, industries, elites seeking to gain prominence and power as the people continue to struggle under the measures still imposed by governments throughout the world. You won't find this depth of worldwide analysis anywhere else, and this ebook is available right now, free, on our website at pop.org. It's called Pandemonium. To get it now, just go to our website at pop.org and click on the banner at the top to download your free copy in PDF format. Remember, you won't get all this vital information in one place anywhere else. So just go to pop.org and download Pandemonium. Today, you'll be glad you did. PRI President Steve Moser has interviewed the Chinese scientist who defected to the United States. She says that the COVID-19, or Wuhan virus, does not come from nature but was created in a lab. Here's Steve Moser's report, first published in LifeSiteNews.com. The coronavirus was man-made and did not originate from a wet market in Wuhan, says a Chinese whistleblower and one of the first scientists to study COVID-19 in China. Dr. Li Mengyan, 36, a medical doctor and virologist who fled to the U.S. in April to tell the world about the origins of the virus, said that based on her own research, the coronavirus, and I quote, did not come from nature at all. It was created in a lab. Dr. Yan and her colleagues have just published a scientific paper summarizing how the unusual features of the SARS CoV-2 genome suggests sophisticated laboratory modification rather than natural evolution. In it, she lays out exactly how the deadly pathogen could have been synthesized in the P4 lab in Wuhan. And now various scientists from around the world are saying she may be right. In a lengthy interview with me two years ago, Yan, who is in hiding and fears for her life, said that the Chinese government knew the virus was man-made and knew about the dangers of person-to-person transmission 
well before it became a global pandemic. Before she defected, Yan worked at Asia's top virology lab, the P3 lab at the University of Hong Kong. The lab is the global center for coronavirus research, where its famous SARS hunters cracked the code of the first SARS coronavirus outbreak in 2003. In late December, her supervisor, Dr. Leo Poon, asked her to take a look into a cluster of SARS-like bases that had originated in Wuhan, a city of 11 million in central China. She began to communicate with a network of medical contacts throughout China, and by December 31st, she learned that there was a human-to-human transmission of the new virus, a fact that was suppressed by the Chinese Communist Party and later by the World Health Organization, she told me. Yan took her concerns to Poon, who repeatedly warned her to keep silent, she said. He told her not to criticize the CCP or contradict them on their official line on the origins of the coronavirus, which they said was spread from eating wild animals at a wet market in Wuhan. If you do, we will get in trouble and will be disappeared, she said he told her. For three months, Yan took his advice to heart and continued her research and soon discovered that COVID-19 had two artificial man-made insertions that make it particularly deadly to human beings. The first insertion allows it to spread easily from person to person, while the second insertion allows the virus to infect different kinds of tissue once it is already in the human body. Any scientist who has this knowledge will know that it is not from nature, she told me. Well, around the world, virologists who are studying the virus are starting to back her claims that the virus is man-made. The properties that we now see in the virus we have yet to discover anywhere in nature, said Norwegian virologist Birger Sorensen in a July 13th interview with the scientific journal Minerva. We know that these properties make the virus very infectious, so it If it came from nature, there should also be many animals infected with this, but we have still not been able to trace the virus in nature. When we compare the novel coronavirus with the one that caused SARS, we see that there are altogether six inserts in this virus that stand out compared to other known SARS viruses, said Sorensen, who works for Immunor AS, a Norwegian company that researches and develops vaccines. Nikolai Petrovsky, the director of endocrinology at Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia, also said that the virus could be man-made. Our own research, which is currently under review and based on rigorous molecular modeling, reveals some highly unexpected findings for a virus postulated to have recently crossed from animal to humans, he told me in an interview. From the very earliest isolates, it was uniquely adapted to infect humans above other species we tested. An internationally renowned scientist, Professor Joseph Trito, who is the president of the Paris-based World Academy of Biomedical Sciences and Technologies, has also published a book describing how the China virus was created in the lab. U.S. researchers are being more cautious but are not dismissing Dr. Yan's claims. We can't rule it out, said Jonathan Latham, a virologist and co-founder 
of the Bioscience Research Project in Ithaca, New York, a nonprofit that conducts scientific research. He said his team of researchers believe that the Wuhan Institute of Virology studied tissue samples from minors who were infected with the virus in 2012, but they don't know whether these samples were later manipulated in the lab. And he said, if they go wrong, then you have a man-made virus, he told me. He also believes that the virus almost certainly escaped from the lab. Richard Ebright, a professor of chemistry and director of the Waxman Institute of Microbiology at Rutgers in New Jersey, said that although he disagrees with Ann's series of insertions, he would not rule out the possibility that the virus could have been lab manipulated. It is important to note, this does not rule out the possibility the virus was laboratory constructed or laboratory enhanced using methods that do not leave signatures, he said. Dr. Yan, in her new article, has convincingly rebutted the arguments of Lathan and Ebright. She points out that both are based on a belated claim by the now-disappeared director of the P4 lab in Wuhan, Dr. Shi Zhengli, that she found a very close relative to the China virus in nature way back in 2012. Dr. Shi only reported this discovery in January of this year, after the outbreak of the pandemic, registering it under the name of coronavirus RATG13. It's suspiciously similar to SARS-CoV-2, and as Dr. Yan explains in her article, a close study of the genome shows that it is a fabrication. For her part, Yan was desperate to get the truth out in order to save lives. She knew she would have to leave China to do so, she said. I tried to persuade my husband who worked in the same lab, to come with me, she said, but I failed. Yan secretly bought a plane ticket to Los Angeles and landed in the United States on April 28th. She spent her first two months in the country in hiding while being debriefed by U.S. intelligence officials. But with cases rising dramatically around the world, she began to speak out. She gave an interview to Fox News last month. There are nearly 30 million cases of the virus and almost a million deaths globally, according to the most recent statistics collected by Johns Hopkins University. Why would the Chinese government create such a deadly pathogen? Was it trying to create a bioweapon or a vaccine? Yan said she doesn't know the answer, but noted that all labs in China are under the control of the government. And in Wuhan... Research into the coronavirus is under the supervision of Chen Wei, an epidemiologist who is a bioweapons expert and major general in the Chinese military, she said. Adding to the concerns about China's bioweapons program is the fact that Major General Chen Wei was just last week given an award called the People's Hero by none other than Chinese President Xi Jinping for her work on the China virus. According to Yan, the Wuhan lab has used a coronavirus owned by the People's Liberation Army as the backbone for their so-called insertions. The pathogen, internationally registered under ZC45, is the only one owned by the People's Liberation Army Biowarfare Labs, she said. The Wuhan lab was collecting hundreds of coronavirus from all over China, she said. They claimed it was better to predict future coronavirus 
epidemics that might emerge from nature. But if they were worried about a coronavirus epidemic, why weren't they making any effort into vaccine research as we were doing in our lab in Hong Kong? As to how the virus might have escaped from the high containment Wuhan lab, Yan said, it was not an accident. No one in the lab got sick or died. There are always two people in the lab. No live virus would be able to escape. Yan said she doesn't know if the escape was caused by a disgruntled employee or whether a more sinister plot involving the Chinese government was afoot. What we do know is that the great Chinese cover-up continues. Dr. Xi, who created the China virus in her lab, has disappeared. The Wuhan lab itself remains off-limits to foreigners. The Chinese Communist Party is doing everything it can to hide the origins of the virus. Since she began speaking out last month, Yan has been fired by the University of Hong Kong, which also dismissed her findings that the virus is handmade. Her husband has distanced himself from her, and her parents have publicly called her a traitor, she said. I do this because I am a scientist and I know the truth and I want to tell it to the world, she told me. But if they find me, they will kill me. You're listening to the PRI Review from the Population Research Institute at pop.org. We'll be right back. Using Aborted Babies for COVID-19 Vaccine Research Fetal cells and tissues derived from aborted babies must not be used to develop vaccines and treatments for COVID-19. American taxpayers should not be forced to foot the bill for any research involving cells derived from aborted babies either. Unfortunately, many of the leading vaccine candidates for the 2019 novel coronavirus are being developed using cell lines that were originally derived from a number of babies that were aborted in the 1960s and 1970s. Using cell lines harvested from aborted babies is highly unethical and morally unconscionable. It encourages pharmaceutical companies to continue developing new drugs, vaccines, and therapeutics with cell lines derived from abortions. Unfortunately, some of this research is being funded by the U.S. government, including through grants awarded by the National Institutes of Health, NIH. Now before it is too late is the time to say no to COVID-19 research using fetal cell lines derived from aborted babies. We want a clean vaccine for COVID-19. Fortunately, there are many ethical and promising alternatives that can be used for developing vaccines and therapeutics for COVID-19. They include, but are not limited to, chicken egg and monkey kidney cells, human placental cells, K562 cell line, tobacco plant cells, and recombinant DNA. Some of these alternatives have been used for decades in the development of vaccines and have proven a track record of success. Many potential vaccines and therapeutics developed using ethical alternatives are already showing encouraging results, and some are already slated to begin clinical trials. That's right, and now is the time to tell the federal government not to fund COVID-19 vaccine research 
using cell lines from aborted babies. Will you let Secretary Azar know he needs to conduct baby-safe research? And let President Trump and Vice President Pence know how much you value their pro-life work and that you are counting on their support of this clean vaccine. Secretary Azar controls huge numbers of researchers working on a coronavirus vaccine. He has the power to direct research away from the use of aborted baby bodies and toward other proven methods of vaccine research and production. He needs a strong push. Our president and vice president will take your cue and provide additional push, so please send them your letters. You can choose to add some of your own comments to your letters or skip directly to the end of the form to send your letters to President Trump, Vice President Pence, and HHS Secretary Azar. Thanks so much for standing for life. Remember, just go to our website at pop.org forward slash clean vaccine, no space, just pop.org forward slash clean vaccine, and you'll be sending Secretary Alex Azar, President Donald Trump, and Vice President Pence those all-important letters. You'll be glad you did. In other news, on September 3, 2020, President Donald Trump wrote to pro-life leaders and activists throughout the United States. In 2016, he writes, I ran as a pro-life candidate for president, and with your support, we won the White House. Since my inauguration, I have proudly governed as the most pro-life president in our nation's history. Together, we have accomplished so much for unborn children and their mothers during my first term in office by transforming the federal judiciary, by fighting for the unborn around the globe, by stopping taxpayer funding of the big abortion industry, by fighting for the conscience rights of the little sisters of the poor, by ending taxpayer funding for new medical research using aborted baby body parts, and becoming the first president ever to address the March for Life and the Susan B. Anthony List Campaign for Life in person. As I seek re-election this November, I need your help in contrasting my bold pro-life leadership with Joe Biden's abortion extremism. The Democratic Party unequivocally supports abortion on demand up until the moment of birth and even infanticide, leaving babies to die after failed abortions. Joe Biden's embrace of this extreme position is most evidenced by his support for taxpayer funding of abortion on demand. Forcing taxpayers to pay for abortions is an abhorrent position that must be defeated at the ballot box. Joe Biden has doubled down on these positions with his selection of abortion extremist Kamala Harris as his running mate. With your help, I will win re-election, ensuring we have another four years to fight in the trenches for unborn children and their mothers. Together, we will work to continue our transformation of the federal judiciary, overcome Democratic filibusters in Congress to finally pass and sign into law the pain-capable Unborn Child Protection Act the No Taxpayer Funding for Abortion Act, and the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. And finally, 
by fully defunding the big abortion industry, such as Planned Parenthood, of our tax dollars. I thank Marjorie Dannenfelser and Christina Bennett for co-chairing my Pro-Life Voices for Trump coalition. I urge every pro-life American to join this effort and to do your part to defeat abortion extremism this November. Instead, we can score a major historic victory for unborn children and their mothers. Signed, President Donald Trump. A few days ago, New York Times op-ed columnist Thomas Friedman told CNN's Chris Cuomo that Trump supporters are, as he put it, mostly uneducated. Well, undoubtedly, Mr. Friedman considers Trump's opponents on the left to be educated. Well, let's look at that. The left has used various terms to dismiss without argument or logic or evidence the conservative position on all sorts of issues. They call it conspiracy theory, radical, far-right, the lunatic fringe, and so on. You know, even Nazi and Hitler uh, come to mind uh, because if they know those two words, then they need no other words to describe evil. Now, these are not historical terms for the indolent woke. They're the only two words in their vocabulary, in Ethics 101. That absolves the woke from knowing anything else in class. If you know that Trump is a Nazi and a Hitler, that is your moral qualification to get an instant A. But why don't they demand evidence and argument? Because they are trapped by their ideological blinders. But frankly, it's more like handcuffs. If they accepted argument, their hypotheses might be proven wrong. So they will not argue. They will assert. They refuse to enter an honest conversation. Their feelings are their argument. So they won't even agree to the meaning of simple, basic words. Now, without a language in common... There is no community of discourse, which means that we can't communicate at all. Words become political, then they're politicized, then they are worthless. They are brickbats to command and to silence, to bully, not to discuss and persuade. But George Orwell was right. Words are very important. Remember the Ministry of Truth that changed the meaning of words all the time? And remember... Humpty Dumpty, who told Alice that he could make a word mean whatever he wants it to mean, as long as it keeps him in power? Well, speaking of power, Stalin wrote a book on language. Confucius recognized the importance of restoring the proper meaning of words to restore order in society. Unfortunately, today, two generations of school students have been deprived of the tools with which to analyze critically the language and arguments and assertions used not only in politics, but in science and culture and religion. As a result, these graduates, until they learn by the seat of their pants and common sense what's going on, they are prisoners in a cacophony of words. So Mr. Friedman's deliberate and calculated insult to the millions of people supporting President Trump is not and was never designed 
to tell the truth. His purpose is to control, intimidate, manipulate, subjugate, and then to punish, punish severely those who resist. And finally, some ancient history. In the summer of 1960, I was demonstrating outside the Republican National Convention at the Chicago Stockyards. I had a homemade sign, Out the Door with Eleanor, that was a tribute to the wife of the late President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, At the time, she was an itinerant leftist and was not very beloved in conservatives of that era or of any other era, for that matter. So there I was, cheering for Barry on the streets of Chicago's South Side, when a guy from my Indiana high school hailed me. His father was a national committeeman from Kansas, and I believe he had his own train car there to enjoy the convention in luxury. Well, he had an extra pass to the convention floor. Would I like to use it? Sure did. I handed my sign to my sister and went off to the first door I saw, a service entrance, and I wandered inside what looked like a big cavernous storeroom. I turned out to be just inside the entrance to the main floor, the convention hall. I saw a group of attractive young women. They were all dressed up in matching black cocktail dresses, lined up four abreast like a high school pom-pom troupe. This now was the old days when real bands played and real balloons festooned the hall ceilings. Sure enough, the gals were part of the demonstration that would spontaneously erupt the moment Nixon's nomination was put forward later that evening. Richard Nixon was vice president at the time and the likely Republican nominee to run against John F. Kennedy that year. All the gals were wearing white sashes emblazoned with Nixon in blue. Nixon? No way, I had to do something. So I went up to one of them, a cute blonde 20-something. You can't be for Nixon, I cried. He doesn't stand for anything. I was pleading here in my most mature possible 13-year-old voice. The gal smiled and turned over her right shoulder strap of her dress to show me the campaign button she had hidden there. Kennedy for president, it read. I'm getting paid for this, honey, she cooed. Folks, for the last 60 years, the voice of this accidental oracle has hovered close by. In my book of American politics, her line is Genesis 1, verse 1. Her unvarnished wisdom penetrates every page. This has been the PRI Review, coming to you from the Population Research Institute at pop.org. Thanks for listening. <music>